Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Dr. Drew Gray is a historian of the 18th and 19th centuries who teaches at the University of Northampton, where he's the subject lead for history. He's our guest for this episode. You won't be surprised to hear that he also specializes in the history of crime and punishment. His books on Jack the Ripper include London's Shadows, The Dark Side of the Victorian City, and Jack and the Thames Torso Murders, A New Ripper. Those hit the shelves alongside big projects like his book Crime, Policing, and Punishment in England from 1660 to 1914. You can also find his writing on his blog, The Police Magistrate, which tells dramatic stories from England's history of summary justice. Dr. Gray is a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. He has been a member of the editorial board of the London Journal since 2011 and is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Recently, Dr. Drew has been publishing articles on the myths and legends around Jack the Ripper and how historians would benefit from paying more attention to the murders in Victorian Whitechapel. You could say that he's been doing a little unobscuring of his own, and we're delighted to have him on the show. We begin with his thoughts on Jack the Ripper as a myth, as someone who never, ever existed, and then move on from there. This is the Unobscured interview series for Season 3. I'm Aaron Mankey. Well, if I could start by saying something probably slightly controversial, which is to say there's no, there's no such person as Jack the Ripper. He, he never existed. Of course, there was a serial killer, or possibly serial killers, at loose in 1888. And that person was responsible for the murder of several very poor and vulnerable women. But the monster that's come down to us as Jack the Ripper is in many ways an invention of of popular print culture. And then subsequently a century or more of amateur sleuthing and speculation about the killer. So Jack is a sort of dark fantasy figure that was created in 1888 and has developed ever since. And in doing so has taken on the aspects of each succeeding generation that's looked at him. Um, Not unlike in in some respects, the way in which Sherlock Holmes has been reimagined to suit the age in which he inhabits. So since we don't know who Jack was, we can continue to continue to offer up suspects that reflect our own fears and our own prejudices, the things that bother us in our own in our own ages. And this process starts right at the beginning of the um, case in, in the autumn of 1888, when the murderer was first thought of to be possibly a sort of top-hatted toff, um, a slumming Burlington Bertie, or a psychotic doctor carrying a Gladstone bag full of sharp knives, or perhaps even a crazed immigrant Jew, uh, an anarchist revolutionary bent on destroying English society. And then when you throw in dark alleyways covered in fog from which a murderer can sort of emerge wraith-like clutching a knife and then vanish just as easily leaving the police behind looking baffled, you've got the kind of perfect recipe for a gothic horror story. 
And the fact that this bears very little resemblance to the truth is, is kind of immaterial. The industry that's grown from the murder of these women is the reality that most people today understand. Another observation that you make in that same book, London's Shadows, is that most of what we know about the reality of life in London in the 1880s is filtered through the middle-class sensibilities of the time. How would you describe those sensibilities and the way that they shaped then and shape now what we can know about that moment in the city's history, maybe, you know, in Britain's history? What kinds of documents do we have that guide us through the details of what was happening in the East End or, or the murders themselves? How do we get at that? Well, of course, it's um, extremely difficult before our century or the 20th century, perhaps, to know at all what people thought about the world around them, uh, especially, this is especially true for what you might call ordinary working class people. Even if people could read and write, which is very far from universal in the 1880s, not many of them would have had the time to do so or the money to spare on ink uh, and paper to write on. So working class memories of life in the Victorian period are extremely rare. Instead, we have examples of popular culture. So musical songs like My Old Man, um, My Old Man's a Dustman, for example, which provide glimpses <laughs> of how folk understood their society at the time. You know, sort of kind of coming down to us through song and music hall and jokes and that kind of thing. Um, but, that, but that's very little from working class people. Instead, historians have had to make do with the diaries and writings of the middle class um, and the elite. Um, so I'm kind of thinking of men like William Stead, the, the newspaper editor, or authors like George Sims or Andrew Meehan's or, or social investigators and reformers like Charles Booth or Beatrice Webb. And, of course, these people, mostly from the middle classes, write as, as a, to some extent we all do, from their own perspective. And so this history is kind of naturally imbued with their own prejudices and their own moral compass, um, which was quite different, of course, from the way in which working class people understood their lives. And in terms of documentation about Whitechapel and the Whitechapel murders, we, we've got very little. Uh, you know, I, I always think that it's a, it's a truism that people in the past don't really think about the, the needs of researchers in the future when they're keeping or not keeping documentation. Most of what we do have is kept, well, most of what we do have in the public realm is kept at the National Archives at Kew in, in South of the River in London. In, in, a, in a couple of police files. And this is actually rather disappointing when you actually get to look at it. There are some case papers, but these are pretty thin. There are some photos of the victims, which are widely known now, and they're all over the internet. And a lot of letters sent to the police and press during and after the summer and autumn of 1888. Um, in addition, we have the reports of coroner's inquests and a commentary on the police investigation through the pages of the newspapers. And over the decades that have passed, various pieces of evidence have emerged, um, like, for example, the Maybrick diary, which have been hotly disputed, um, or the Little Child Letter, which these bits and pieces have provided more angles for researchers to 
hang their speculations on, but not necessarily much illumination into the case itself. And I think most researchers would agree that we've probably lost as much evidence over the years as we've found. And there's so that we're left with very little that a modern detective force could use to identify the killer. In, in terms of the history of Whitechapel and the East End, in terms of that sort of documentation, we have census records, which are interesting, and we have street directories, which tell us quite, quite a bit. And we have Charles Booth's fantastic maps of London in the late 19th century, which indicate the areas of poverty and relative wealth. But of course, not really very much survives because again, what, why would you keep that kind of stuff? The, the, the stuff we want to find out about ordinary people's lives, they just don't generate those records unless they appear in something, for example, like a, a court case. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and speaking of, of court cases and, and settings where, where documents are generated, um, you mentioned that your, your focus as a historian is on crime, and you've done a lot of work on Victorian police courts and, and published regularly on the Police Magistrate blog, which is full of fascinating stories. Um, can you describe Victorian police courts and the role that they played in the justice system of the late 1800s? Yeah, the, 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 the Victorian police court and the Victorian police court magistrates that presided in these courts is part of a, sort of a long tradition of summary justice in, in England, which has a very long history. And, and that's kind of been the focus of most of my career um, since I started in academia. And, um, <laughs> so, of course, with these things, it's quite di- it's quite difficult to say a little when you can say an awful lot. <laughs> yes, yeah. But yeah. I'll try. Um, the the police court a police court magistrate presided over um, a whole range of different sorts of um, cases throughout the nineteenth century. They were they were appointed as men with who had at least seven years of experience of practicing law, and they sat in rotation in in a series of courts. So there were there were police magistrates' courts from the late 18th century, from 1792 onwards, a little bit earlier for places like Bow Street. And they covered most of the metropolis. So there were places at Westminster and Great Marlborough Street and Queen Square. There was a couple in the East End at Worship Street and, and Thames. Um, there was police courts in in um, Southwark and Lambeth, and then later in the century, they they moved out to the to the, the the suburbs, like places like Highgate, for example. So, so you could see a magistrate right across the the city, and and there were and in addition, of course, there were two magistrates' courts in the city of London itself, which is a separate um, authority. It's a, it's a separate urban authority. It's not it's not under the same government as the the rest of the metropolis. And um, these police court magistrates sat alone, which which made them unique in, in England, where most magistrates would sit in pairs or threes, but in London they had extra powers. They were advised by a clerk, but otherwise they'd make decisions on whether to send someone to prison to find them or, or to send them on for a trial before a jury entirely on their own. So there's no jury in these trials. They sit at the bottom, if you like, of the criminal justice system below the 
the quarter sessions, and then the assize or the old Bailey court. And police court magistrates would have dealt with all sorts of crime, but also a lot of social problems. So they would deal with a, a tremendous amount of drunk and disorderly behaviour, um, but also petty theft, some quite serious theft like burglary and fraud, right through to cases of domestic violence, assaults on the police and murder. They, well, If it came to a murder, they wouldn't be convicting somebody of murder, but they would be pushing them up through the criminal justice system. So this, this is a place of first, first hearing. So it's where some of the, the, the facts of cases are established before they're then sent on up through the criminal justice system. But these courts are also the first port of call for those complaining about all sorts of things that bothered them in Victorian London. So people being overcharged by cab drivers, um, policemen bringing in costermongers, bringing in um, market traders for obstructing the streets, or for the very poor in London who are requesting help. Um, this is where you'll find people accused of committing suicide or attempted suicide, you know, escaped lunatics, um, dangerous dogs, all these sorts of things will come before the police court. So they're a fantastic window into the Victorian um, capital. Unfortunately, going back to the problem of documentation in the past, these courts leave us very little in the way of archival material. Um, most of the records are lost if they were ever kept for very long. There are a small smattering of cases um, of case books from the Thames Court, but, but not much else outside of Bow Street. But we do have newspaper reports because the newspapers daily reported on the cases that came for the police courts because I think their readers were really interested in looking at life through this, this particular lens. Hmm. Turning now a little toward the East End, uh, you've also written that it's a place that had a diverse culture. Uh, you say many places of worship entertainment, trade, uh, a long history. Um, but that after 1888, everyone in the world knew where Whitechapel was. But at the same time, the Ripper murders obscured the reality of that part of London. So if the murders didn't actually define Whitechapel and, you know, hide what life was actually like there by, by growing beyond the, you know, the dew of those events... How could the East End at the time be more justly described, you know, with, with your historian's eyes, looking back beyond those obscuring events? How do we describe the East End of London at this time? I think, it, of course, we, everything becomes sort of mired in, in, in representations from the period. I, I always try to imagine that I'm going back in time and I'm stepping out onto the rather, rather dirty streets of, of London in the 19th century. But I would describe the East End in 1888 as a multicultural melting pot, a kind of vibrant community of people struggling to survive in, in, a, in a society, of course, which generally failed to support those that fell on, on hard times. So I see a series of communities, not, not one community, but several communities, and, and not always seeing eye to eye, mm. where kind of new immigrants mingled with established ones and native East Enders, for want of a better word, rubbed shoulders with new arrivals and, and with 
slumming tourists, you know, wealthier people coming into the area to kind of gawp at what they could see. I see Whitechapel as somewhere where poverty was endemic, but at the same time, there's an entrepreneurial spirit kind of everywhere. So words I'd use to describe Whitechapel in the 1880s would be bold, brassy, sometimes shocking, often funny, amusing, always lively and exciting and and ever-changing. And I'd probably go further and say that that's actually how I see the East End, that East End and Shoreditch and, and Whitechapel and Spitalfields in 21st century Britain. It's very much that kind of exciting exciting place to be. Mm. The first place my mind went when I read that passage that you'd written was those those maps, those Charles Booth maps that you mentioned, where there, there you, you said you know there's the color coding and for showing different levels of uh, of wealth, of class, of success. You know, so there's the the markings for very deep poverty, and they're marked in black. And with that stereotype about the East End, I go to look at the map, but it's really a mix. It's not. There are these pockets where he's marked them black, you know, desperate poverty. But you mentioned the entrepreneurial spirit and these different communities kind of shoulder to shoulder, kind of jostled up together. And I see even in terms of class, there are some very, (laughs) very wealthy neighborhoods in the East End, as well as some of the very poor. So even in the documents that we do have from the time, like Charles Booth's maps, you can see that kind of the mixing and people shoulder to shoulder who are living quite different lives from each other, even in the same neighborhood. Um, when, what were the contrasts between East and West London as Victorians imagined them in the 1880s? How for, how fair were the kinds of generalizations maybe that they had about each other? Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I mean, the, all, all of what you've just said about the, about Booth is, is stuff I would certainly, certainly, Point to. I mean, the West End, or in popular parlance, the best end, <laughs> was home to the wealthy. Uh, it was a playground for those who had money. And of course, it was a magnet for people who wanted to work. So plenty of East Londoners worked in the West End, worked in the shops and the pubs and the pubs and the, and came over, you know, the women came over sometimes to, to, to act as prostitutes and escorts in that part of town. And this is where the shops and the clubs and the theatres of Victorian London were. Um, you know, th- this is where you'd find the elegant streets and the squares around Bloomsbury. And this is this this is what looked like the capital of the the, the greatest empire the world had ever seen. All of it, you know, beautifully lit um, and well served by transport networks. Now, if you contrast that with the east end of London. Um, this is poor, dark, overcrowded, and, and largely degraded. Um, so, as I've, I've said before, the, while the West End was affluent, the East End was effluent, kind of st- stinking in the noses of those that visited it. And, and that's the image we have of the contrast between the East and West Ends of London in the 19th century, and it's probably the image that most Londoners would have had, certainly most West Londoners and people from outside the capital. How fair was this? Well, the East End was 
poor. It was overcrowded and it was home to those dirty trades that were necessary, such as you know, slaughtering and tanning. Those industries have always been placed in the east of the capital. Mm. And that, that goes right back in, in history. But Charles Booth's great survey of poverty, um, his mapping of London, reveals that, yeah, there were certainly more areas of wealth and prosperity in the West End than in the East End, but the East End wasn't entirely riddled with poverty. So red for commercial and well-to-do streets mingle with black and dark blue areas, which denote poverty and criminality. Um, and you will find pockets of deprivation across the capital, right, in, in West London as well. So the contrast is a useful starting point, but London was a very mixed city in the 1800s, and poverty and wealth often lived, you know, cheek by jowl, side by side. Um, that remains the case about London in a way that it's not true of some of some other European cities like Paris in the 19th century or or today, which which kept the the wealthy and poorer areas much better. Um, separated. Mm. Can you describe the role of journalism, like uh, like the Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon series that was published, I believe, in 1885? Um, how how the journalism that was being published in the 1880s helped to kind of create that imaginative geography, you know, the stereotypes of the East End. Mm. Well, I think, it, I mean, one thing we have to remember, of course, is that most people, or certainly most middle-class people, um, even middle-class people in London, and these were the people that read most of the newspapers, rarely ventured into the East End or any of London's other poorer areas. Mm. You know, it's like St Giles or the Borough uh, in Southwark. And they just didn't go there. Instead, they learned about those areas through the newspapers they read. And papers gave them a partial and a biased view of those areas, um, not unlike the way in which darkest Africa was described by the missionaries who went there to, you know, loosely use the term civilise it in the 19th century. So colourful descriptions of the East End, you know, featuring the strange peoples that lived there, their, their weird customs, their smelly foods and the clothes that they wore, were all printed in ways that were similar to the descriptions offered of faraway and exotic lands in you know, India and China and and Africa, all the parts of the the all the parts touched by the British Empire, mm. and people like William Stead, who pioneered what what we could probably call what you know, who pioneered what's been termed new journalism, recognised the power that the media had to affect change, as well as turning a profit by selling newspapers. He's a, Stead is a very modern journalist and, and newspaper editor, and he'd fit right in to our modern media circus. So sensational articles like his Made in Tribute of Modern Babylon or, or Andrew Means's Bitter Cry of Outcast London, which Stead also published, were intended to both shock and titillate the readers. Mm. Since most most people had no first-hand experience of the way that the poor lived. The articles that they read in the pages of organs like the Pall Mall Gazette would have shocked and concerned them and, and helped to sort of create this vision of um, 
the East End uh, uh, and other parts of London, which, whilst having germs of truth in them, it's not to say that these things weren't true, but they they come to dominate all the narratives. And it, it, it's it's rather like, I would say, until people started to travel in the sort of 1960s, 1970s onwards to other parts of the world, including the United States, people got their ideas about other countries through television. So, you know, we all have an idea, you know, I grew up having an idea of 1970s and 1980s America because I've never been there. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and would you like, you know, your primetime television to be the accurate portrayal of, you know, American life? And, you know, it, it's, I guess it's a similar to the Americans watching Downton Abbey and thinking that's how English people live. Right. You know, popular culture presents us with an image which isn't necessarily true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last night I watched uh, Sense and Sensibility, the 1995 uh, film with my wife, you know, yeah. Yeah, and I watched Perry Mason. <laughs> well, there we go. The, the, the new one, or or um, or City of Angels. I think that's the other thing I'm watching at the moment. So you know, I know all about America in the 1930s and 30s because I watched <laughs> Boardwalk Empire and all these kind of HBO big budget things. So I know exactly what it's like over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and there's another Booth, William Booth, who's working in Whitechapel in the 1880s. So at the mm. same time that, that Charles Booth is producing his maps and that these journalists are writing stories, uh, there are people who are motivated to take action. And William Booth and his wife, Catherine, uh, they form the Salvation Army. And that's in the East End, right? Absolutely. So he founded the East London Christian Mission in 1865, um, I think on the, on the Whitechapel Road. Um, it's, I think his first, one of his first preaching sessions was in a building which is now a pub called The Blind Beggar, um, which has more famous modern connections to the Cray twins in the 1960s. But yeah, the, he adopted, they adopted the Salvation Army tag in, in 1878. They were former Methodists and, and they wanted to bring religion and abstinence from alcohol to the people of the East End. They operated by holding large public meetings and, and organising marches through through communities. All these marches are accompanied by brass bands made up of their members. Um, there's a military system of organisation, so General Booth is at the head and they, they, have, they have soldiers. And, of course, they distribute their weekly newspaper, The War Cry, um, on the streets and by going into public houses. And Booth like many social reformers at the time, saw alcoholism as an integral cause of poverty, immorality, and then of domestic violence. And, and his army challenged men and women to change their lives, looking to recruit from within those working class communities. And they brought their, their kind of brand of religious fervor into, into communities like Whitechapel, which often drew down quite a lot of abuse and ridicule from the locals. And um, he, might, he might not have listened to the rhetoric that they were putting out, their, their, their Christian vision. Because in the early days of the army, the marching bands delivered a sort of a rather terrible din <laughs> rather than a medley of beautiful music because they weren't particularly good at playing their instruments. And you quite often find Salvationists being brought before magistrates by the police 
for causing a nuisance or causing an obstruction. But they're clearly people who are driven by their very strong religious beliefs to affect change in, in the communities they see that are so blighted by alcohol and, and poverty, crime and homelessness. And when you talk about uh, journalists publishing stories about the East End in a way that connects them to the margins or the reaches of the British Empire, I, th- I thought it was so interesting that William Booth, he picks up on the uh, In Darkest Africa kind of stereotype, and he publishes a book called In Darkest England, right? Yeah, and in, 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 I think in 1891, um, yes, he, he publishes a book because it's taking that kind of idea of the missionary. So if we're sending missionaries out to Africa, you know, we're sending the likes of Stanley and Livingstone, there's kind of explorers come missionaries to bring the word of, it's not just the word of God, is it? Of course, it's the, it's the, it's the world, word of white civilization to so-called uncivilized African tribes. Uh, in that in that terribly imperialistic way that was such a feature of the 19th century mm. and um but if you're going to do that in africa and you've got desperate poverty and people who um are living in immoral conditions you know people not getting married and having children out of wedlock and in andrew means's term you know incest is common in in the in the hovels of, of east london even if he was exaggerating, then surely you need missionaries to go out to Whitechapel and Spitalfields and then down below the river, south of the river, into the borough and Southwark and Bermondsey and places like that, where you've got, similarly, it looks like the world has been neglected. Uh, It looks like Christ is not permeating into those parts of the empire. So darkest England is, is is a kind of perfect um, vehicle for him to 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 make that point. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that if we're talking about a place that is, you said at the beginning, a multicultural melting pot, um, then some of what we've been discussing when it comes to middle class sensibilities is also it's mixing and being motivated by some of those ideas about white civilization too. When you're talking about bringing it to the margins of empire or into this multicultural. Uh, region of your own city yeah i i mean let's i mean we need to be really clear it's a different it's a different world it's a different it's a different society but but um Mm. 19th century britain is a is a quite it's quite a racialist society you know we we, the the british see themselves as superior and superior as white but superior as british as english um than than pretty much the rest of the world We, we look down on pretty much everybody in the 19th century and um and waves of immigrants from from eastern europe that are coming into london um will be disparaged we are pretty pretty down on the irish we we um are pretty down on the chinese who who have a small pockets of of communities around limehouse and even the europeans our fellow europeans like the french and the germans well we have a beef with them as well throughout the century so uh, everybody is everybody compares very badly to white British civilization. Hmm. And when you're talking about social reform and those kind of missions 
into the East End. You mentioned some of the attitudes uh, toward alcohol, especially from William Booth, but I know those are more general as well. What were some of the attitudes toward, you mentioned earlier, uh, prostitution? How do the social reformers talk about prostitution as a part of kind of anti-vice campaigning and that kind of thing in the East End? So prostitute, I mean, attitudes towards prostitution, they kind of, they yo-yo through the 19th century, the 18th and 19th centuries. So there are varying views of prostitution. They, they, they kind of come in and out of fashion. So prostitutes are quite often seen as a, a necessary evil, sort of protecting the pure and innocent young women from, from lusts, from male lusts, which are, which are seen as kind of natural or, or at least uncontrollable. Um, they're also seen as victims. So the kind of trope of the poor servant girl who's forced into prostitution after being ruined by a predatory you know, master or, or a dishonest lover who's promised to marry her and then run off. Um, but in the aftermath of the Crimean War in the 1850s, the problem of prostitution became mostly focused around sexually transmitted diseases, particularly the diseases of syphilis and gonorrhea, because these had, these had kind of undermined the, the British war effort against Russia in the Crimea. Um, you know, many more people were lost to disease than were lost to bullets and um, cavalry sabers of the Russians. So this kind of dominates the discourse surrounding prostitution and its effects on society in, in the 1860s. And in the 1860s, there are attempts to control prostitution and the spread of what we today would call STIs, um, particularly the, the spread of sexually transmitted infections in the armed forces, the, the army and the navy. And the series of acts are passed, the Contagious Diseases Acts, which helped to cement the idea that prostitutes were a pollutant within society. Mm. They are spreading disease. And this is coupled with the concept that a criminal class existed in Victorian London. Not a particularly new concept, but one that sees a revival in the 1860s once we stop transporting people to Australia. So instead of getting rid of our criminals, they're kind of with us still. They're in our prisons and they're back on our streets. And that kind of reinvigorates this idea of a criminal class, a subspecies of humanity that had the power to corrupt the honest, respectable working man and his family. And prostitutes were seen as a, the kind of female bit of this criminal fraternity, even though Technically, prostitution's not, not actually a crime. And so prostitutes were associated with immorality, with drunkenness, with theatres and musicals, and, of course, with poverty. So there's a whole range of things that come with the Victorian associations with prostitution in, in the Victorian period. Hmm. Well, let's, let's take a step into the East End. We've been talking about the, the attitudes, the stereotypes. But how did people in the East End actually live? Um, you know, I'm interested for thinking about the Whitechapel murders. Um, what are the, the model dwellings that you write about? Um, the Peabody buildings or, or other structures like them. Um, what were these model dwellings? And, and relatedly, kind of who owned the property in the East End? where 
where all these people lived? So Peabody homes or model dwellings are um, are an attempt from the from the 1860s onwards to rehouse to rehome the poor in better, well ventilated and hygienic homes. There's a recognition that London is full of unpleasant slums, um, really badly built and and dec- and, and crumbling housing from the 18th and early 19th century there are parts of London where which are almost no-go areas so around St Giles parts of Whitechapel where um, the term rookery is used you know you're kind of thinking of crows living living together in you know in in nests at the top of top of trees mm. and the, these rookeries are um, full of crime and vice and Systematically, the the authorities try to knock them down and build better places, uh, or sometimes they knock down, for example, around Liverpool Street to build the new railway station in the nineteenth century. But the idea of model dwellings really comes from you know movements in the eighteen forties, but comes to fruition in the eighteen sixties. So you have particularly gathering momentum through the philanthropy of George Peabody, who's a wealthy American banker. And he kind of gets together with the architect Henry Derbyshire to establish a trust, the Peabody Trust, which is to which is designed to build affordable block housing, tenement housing across London. And one of the first of these is in the East End. So these are large tenement blocks, um, sort of built around, built in a sort of a square, an oblong around the central courtyard, which is creating a safe space for communities which are shut off from the streets outside. And Peabody is not the only organisation doing this. There are other companies who are doing this. It's part philanthropy, but obviously you're making profit, hopefully, but a small profit out of this. So there's the Rothschild buildings in Flarendine Street, which are built in 1887. But many of these places, whilst the emphasis is on rehousing the poor, they only really accommodate the working class who could guarantee to pay the rent. So they acted as a sort of, some of these, these people are acting as a sort of moral landowner. The, 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 model, the model dwellings movement are kind of moral land, landowners. Uh, the, the, this is where you'll find people like Octavia Hill from the Charity Organisation Society, charity visitors, who come round and check on the people that were living here. So they're checking that the men are in work. They're checking that the children are at school, that the rooms are clean and tidy. And if you fail in any of these areas or you can't pay your rent, then you're going to be evicted. So, and, that, and that's very difficult to guarantee for people at the very bottom end of society, people who are the casual poor, who don't have regular jobs, who are reliant, for example, on, on work at the docks, mm. on picking up work on a daily or a weekly basis. Now, you can't guarantee that you can pay your rent. So you're not going to get into a model dwelling. And they're actually the people that really need this decent housing. So the model dwelling movement is definitely a good thing. And you can see many of the model dwellings, you know, Peabody buildings are still existent in London today. They built them very well. They're mm. beautiful uh, examples of Victorian engineering and building. But it, they weren't a panacea. So many other people in, in the East End would have been forced into, you know, poor crowded housing and and we see terrible examples of people living all the way down to to cellars where they're living in sort of stygian 
conditions in dark, unlit, um, damp basements, all the way up to living in, in attic spaces. Whole families in one room. Um, no sanitation, you know, you might have um, shared toilet facilities in the yard at the back. So very poor, um, very cold in winter, very hot in summer. Um, so you see lots of images of Whitechapel of people outside, people being outside because you wouldn't want to be inside because also your inside space is also probably your workshop space. So people who are working, um, peace workers, you know, cobbling or match, building matchboxes, are going to do that at home. So you kind of got to get the kids out from under your feet in order to turn the, your space into a, into a workspace during the day. Hmm. Families sharing beds. These, these conditions were, were what shocked the middle classes when they came to investigate. And below that, if you if you if you couldn't afford even that sort of to rent a room, then you'd be on casual lodging houses where you were paying you know, a few pennies a night for a room, or not even a room, but you're paying for your bed, um, or even a, a rope to sleep on in the worst possible conditions. And these are some of the situations that the women who found themselves as victims of Jack the Ripper and um, were living in the nights before they died. And there's even below that, below below the casual lodgings are is the workhouse, and the workhouse casual ward where you went in in the evening, you got a little bit of bread to eat, and um, you probably got soused down as some kind of wash, um, your clothes taken, your belongings taken away, and, and workhouse clothes to wear. And in the morning you get breakfast, such as it was, but in return for doing some work breaking rocks or picking oakum or something like that. So there's a whole degree of poor housing in the East End. Um, none of it is very good. And who owns it? Well, it's owned by, by slum landlords mostly, um, people like McCarthy who owns um, most of White's Row and Dorset Street where Mary Kelly is murdered. These are, these are landlords who are not wealthy themselves but are certainly exploiting the fact that people need somewhere to live and are desperate for anything they can get. Mm. Mm. And all of these conditions, as you say, existed side by side in Whitechapel. Yeah, they, they're, they're all running, and, and people will probably fall through different gaps. You know, they, 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 your life was determined by what money you had. So in a society without a benefit system, mm. mm -hmm. if you had work, then you would probably... Uh, great. So if you were reasonably, if you you and your wife were in work or you're in work and your wife could look after the kids, then, yeah, you could live in a model dwelling and probably have a decent, clean environment to live in. Nobody in the working class was being paid very much. But if you lost work, you got ill, um, your wife died, your husband died, um, then you were very quickly going to fall into poverty and then fall through those gaps in society. So you would fall from a model dwelling into a cheap lodging, um, in a room in a cheap lodging house, to maybe a, a bunk in a, in, a, in a kip house, to a workhouse, um, to the streets. Because you know, once, you, once you can't even afford the two or three pence a night for, a, um, for part of a bed in a, in a shared lodging, then you're going to be sleeping on a park bench. Hmm. 
thinking about the kinds of people that were living in these neighborhoods, you mentioned uh, a large Irish community, a large Jewish community. Um, what was it like to be Irish in London's East End? What was that? Ex- was the experience of being Irish in the East End uh, typical of what that would be like in other places in London? Uh, what kinds of trades, what kind of residences, homes were open to London's Irish population? I think being Irish in, being working class Irish in, in the East End was probably much similar to being working class Irish anywhere else in London or anywhere else in England. You know, places like, like Liverpool had large Irish communities as well. Mm. So poor, and the Irish population was generally poor, but it was pretty well established. I mean, Irish people have been coming to England forever, but particularly in the, in the 19th century after the potato famine. They were generally lower skilled than most other Londoners, that which made them more at risk to unemployment, to lower wages, and, and therefore impoverishment. In London, in the East End, they could find work at the docks because Irishmen were noted as strong and capable and, and good workers. They made they made good dockers, and importantly, they made good stevedores, which are the, the higher end of the of the dock industry. Irish women would find work in in workshops, so they might they might work as seamstresses or um, match girls, and and many, of course, would have been as they would have been anywhere else in London. They would have been employed as domestics, as domestic servants. So I mean, the Irish being what it was like to be Irish in London, I mean, there's prejudice against the Irish, but it's it's not in the same way that it might have been prejudiced towards people on, on the basis of their their, um, their race as such. The Irish um, were associated very much with, with, a, with a hard drinking and a hard fighting culture. And um, and their, their predominant religion, which is Catholicism, for many of the ones that came over, set them apart from you know largely Protestant England. And I think what you find from the eighteen seventies onwards into the eighteen eighties is is the kind of growth of it's the growth of Irish nationalism. So Irish home rule becomes very much on the comes to dominate politics. Um, domestic politics from the 1870s onwards. And then in the 1880s, we start to see, although it has happened earlier in the 1860s, we start to see episodes of Fenian Irish Republican terrorism. So there's a series of bombings in the 1880s, which probably means that the Irish are... um, They're suspected. They become a suspected part of society and that probably increases prejudices they're catholics they're bombers they're they're drunkards they're violent and they're probably all thieves that's probably a prevalent view of the irish but they don't have it as bad as some other people i think Mm. Mm. Uh, can you describe the jewish community in the east end at the time Um, again kind of homes trades attitudes how long had there been a jewish community in the East End of London? Well, there's been a Jewish community in the East End of London for um, a tremendously long period of time because it's Oliver Cromwell um, in the period of the English Republic who allows the Jews who have been expelled from England um, in the medieval period back in. So they start to establish communities, but they're not allowed to live and trade in the city of London. 
so they they, they set up around the edges so that, that's kind of why we get a jewish community around spitalfields on the on the edge of the city on the edge of mitre square um this community which is well established by the 18th century um but quite small is mainly made up of of Sephardic of of Portuguese um, Jews, and this changes in the nineteenth century with large numbers of Eastern European, Central European Jews coming in, fleeing from persecution and economic distress in the Russian Empire. So the, the so-called Pale of Settlement, where they're forced to live and and forced to serve in the Tsar's armies. So. Jewish people are, are leaving Russia um, and places like Poland and Lithuania, what we would call today, and they're, and they're coming across Europe to settle in England or to travel on to where I think they really want to go, which is America. And when they, they settle in places like Spitalfields, where there's already an established community, th th this works for them because there they can find work as shoemakers and as tailors and shopkeepers. They can, they can understand the language, which generally becomes a kind of a speaking of Yiddish and they're concentrated in areas around Brick Lane, Wentworth Street, Florendine Street and, and Goulson Street where where their, their synagogues are, where there are people that understand them, where they can buy the food they're used to. And and that actually from descriptions at the time, you know, this is looking like another country. Uh, actually of course if you travel to Whitechapel today you'll see a similar thing, but with a different community. You've got a, a, a Bengali community there, um, lots of people from, from um, a, a different part of the world. Um, but, but, but similarly to the Jewish community in the 19th century, you would have found, you know, lack, things written, posters in, in Hebrew, um, signs on walls in Hebrew. So they brought their own customs, their religion, their language, their clothes, their food, and they also, of course, and I think this also helped with the prejudice against them, they brought some of their radical political ideas like socialism and anarchism. Mm. Mm. Um, jumping forward just a little bit to touch on Whitechapel before we continue some of these general comments. Um, just before Annie Chapman's murder, the star begins to publish the story that that Polly Nichols killer was a Jew named Leather Apron. Can you describe what kinds of prejudices, as you said, against Jewish life, that kind of reporting would have conjured up for the star's readership? Yes. I mean, there's a, there's a the, the suggestion that the, the Whitechapel murderer was a guy called Leather Apron, um, sometimes identified as John Pizer. And th th this is this is very much in keeping with contemporary views of, of Jews, but also the way in which the Whitechapel murderer was, the idea of the Whitechapel murderer was constructed at the time and has come down to us ever since. So the descriptions of Leather Apron in the newspapers highlighted things like his small black eyes and his Hebrew features, which is probably suggesting he had a large nose, that kind of that, that, that Semitic appearance and, and the colour of his skin. He was described as sinister. Um, he was in the trades that we would associate, not, not exclusively with, with Jewish immigrants in the 19th century, but certainly with many of them. He was a shoemaker or a bootmaker or a slipper maker. 
and he was he was said to be someone who terrorized local women with a long sharp knife now i think that's important because english people weren't necessarily associated with knives you associated foreigners with knives portuguese sailors um jewish barbers and and shoemakers um native americans escaping from buffalo bills while west traveling show so it was easier for people in london in the 19th century to believe that jack the ripper was a foreigner he was a crazed immigrant someone identified as other rather than an indigenous resident of whitechapel i think those are all things which it it's the presence of large numbers of jews in that area and the prejudice and the anti-semitism which is definitely rife in victorian london which helps to allow someone like the star to point the finger at a leather apron and and for what is worth of course john pizer wasn't jack the ripper he, he, he had an alibi for that 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 um night and the sergeant sergeant thick that arrested him in, ended up having to protect him from the the mob outside mm. In the opening of London's Shadows, you mention um, that there are some distinctly theological aspects of the East End's reputation, uh, and and we've talked about the Salvation Army, and uh, you know mentioned kind of missionary efforts and and that kind of way of thinking about what was going on. Um, and in in your book, you say it wasn't the worst or most criminal place to live in London in the 1880s, but it was representative for many Victorians of the depths to which humanity could sink when separated from a close relationship with God and Christianity. Can you say a bit more about how theology shaped the ideas we've been talking about, about crime and poverty and and vice? Yeah, for sure. I'll I'll never get used to hearing my words come back at me. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, Victorian British society was a lot more religious than modern Britain's society is, um, even if going to church wasn't as ubiquitous as, as some people probably thought it ought to be. But most social reformers were motivated by their Christian beliefs, and this this um, kind of manifested itself in a, in a highly moral discourse about society. And charity was closely linked to Christianity or, or in the case of the Jewish community, to traditions within Judaism. It, it, was, it was a moral obligation to help the poorest, but, but that obligation sat side by side with a belief that some sections of Victorian society had lost sight of the message of Christ. They had to be enlightened. Um, the word of God needed to be brought to the people of Whitechapel just as missionaries were bringing it to the supposedly uncivilized peoples of Africa. Um, so I think you've got that kind of sense that, that all the people that are writing about the East End, Andrew Mears, William Stead, um, Samuel Barnett, um, you know, the women like um, Helen Den- Denby, um, Helen Bosenkake, Beatrice Webb, very many of those social reformers, Charles Booth, um, they are motivated. Or they, they can't separate out their, their religion. It's such a part of them. And I think that's quite different. It's quite difficult, I think, to get that across to people in, in our world because religion doesn't play that kind of role in our society. It's very much an add-on. 
for many people in Britain today. You know, you you go to church at certain times for, for weddings and funerals and baptisms, perhaps, but it's not part of your daily life in the way that it would have informed the lives of people at, at that time. So everything kind of gets seen through that particular lens. Mm. Mm. Thinking about life and death in the East End in 1888, um, what we consider today the Ripper murders weren't the only killings in the Whitechapel area or across the East End. And there's violent crime on record in the neighborhood throughout the 1880s, not just in 1888, you know, in a few months. Um, But how violent, and again, we're kind of talking about stereotypes versus reality. Um, How violent was Whitechapel really? And, And then what was the general understanding of that violence that did occur? Yeah, and it's obviously very difficult to measure violence in the past. Mm, mm. It's, it's quite difficult to measure violence in our own society. It's very difficult to measure violence in the past because, because you're, you can only measure statistics of violence. So you, you, can, you can measure reported crime, you can measure prosecuted crime, you can measure convictions. So the number of assaults, the number of murders, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't really have those sorts of stats for 19th century. There's a sense that violence is, that generally speaking, crime has been in the decline from the 1850s onwards and is beginning to rise again in the 1880s. And that's probably also to do with cycles of of economic cycles. It's also to do with economic cycles because poverty and crime are, are interlinked. And when we talk about violent crime in the past, we're often talking about violent property crime, like robbery, Mm. rather than violence per se. I think violence was endemic in the East End, in Whitechapel, but murder was relatively uncommon, or perhaps we could say that it was no more common than anywhere else in London. And the Whitechapel murders, of course, are notable because of their particular brutality and the and the sequence that was unusual casual violence assaults you know fights between men in pubs domestic abuse were daily occurrences and, and we can see this in the prosecutions at the police magistrate courts at places like thames and worship street mm. violence was mostly carried out by men uh, either against other men against the police or against their female partners and wives or or violence was directed at children and the East End, Whitechapel, Spitalfields was a rough area, but I don't think it's helpful to see it as more violent than any other poor district in the UK at that particular time. Hmm. Well, I can say a bit about other murders in 1888, if that's useful. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, there were other murders in 1888, and not, not least the, the Thames Torso Mystery, which, which could possibly be linked to the Ripper killings. Um, So in that case, there was the discovery of a female torso in the Thames at Raynham in May 1887 with more body parts surfacing that that same year. And then in September 1888, right while the Whitechapel case is is kind of reaching its zenith, another torso was being found amongst the building work for police headquarters at Whitehall. 
And then in June 1989, a third dismembered female body was dragged from the Thames at Horsby Down before, in September of that year, the police discovered a rotting torso underneath arches in Finchon Street, which isn't far from where Liz Stride had been murdered just a year earlier. There were several other high-profile murders in, in London in 1888, but only four men were sent to the gallows as a result of that. So I think we have to put it into context that we think of it as being a murderous age, but actually we weren't sending that many people, we weren't executing that many people for murder. The most compelling murder of 1888, I think, was probably that of Joseph Rumbold, who was killed in May. He was a he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was killed as he strolled in Regent's Park with his girlfriend. Um, and this is part of a gang feud that got out of hand. And his, his killer was an 18-year-old who was sentenced to death but reprieved on account of his age. So it kind of tells us that, that there, were, there were domestic murders, there were murders through robberies, there were gang murders, the Ripper murders because they were serial and because they were particularly brutal are different, but, but, but it wasn't a particularly more murderous year than any other. Mm. Mm. Well, and in your book, uh, Jack and the Thames Torso Murders, um, you describe those cases that you just mentioned at, at Raynham and Whitehall and Pynchon Street um, in a way that I think is very, that I found very helpful and compelling because we do talk as if even, and this is part of the myth of Jack the Ripper, that what we call the Whitechapel murders were particularly horrifying and brutal, and they were. But reading about the Torso murders, I found equally horrifying. Um, and so I appreciated what you did with that book. And so I'm glad you, I'm glad you went on to mention them in this conversation now despite me not dropping that into the outline because, and Paul Begg does this too in his uh, book, Forgotten Victims. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. he talks about the way that you think about the Whitechapel murders and often it's a favored suspect or something that based on, you know, who uh, someone, you know, who's identified as a suspect brings in or omits certain crimes or killings that happened in, in the East End in that year. So I thought that was very helpful in, in your own work when we're talking about building a case and how connected to see these things or not, um, that there's so much of, of life, of death, even of the crimes that were committed, that's, that gets omitted from the stories that we tell. For sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they, we focus on what we want to focus on in the Ripper case. And that, that's how that's how it's been driven. And, and that's kind of the falsification of history in a way, because you leave out the bits that don't fit the argument you want to make. And I think even even the best historians are, are guilty of of that mm. um, at some point, because it, 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 as long as you don't admit things, which as long as you don't admit, omit things which completely dismantle your argument. Um, I think historians probably get away with with, with emphasising the, the facts or the situations which they think are most compelling to drive the narrative that they want to present. Mm. 
thinking about the agencies responsible for <laughs> investigating or preventing all of these crimes, um, you mentioned earlier that the City of London Police is different from the Metropolitan Police. Uh, you mentioned the Thames River Police. There's also the CID at Scotland, the Criminal Investigative, or sorry, what's it? Department. Department, yes. Um, can you briefly describe those various agencies, how they related to each other? Uh, you know, give our listeners a sense of <laughs> what was going on with this complex, sometimes seemingly Byzantine uh, policing organization in a complicated city like London. Yeah, well, the first thing we have to establish, of course, is that London London didn't have a police force until 1829. So the police in, in 1888 is still relatively new. That, that might seem a strange thing to say, but, but, but um, you know, it's, it's only 50-odd, 60 years of policing by the time we get to 1888, since Peel passed the Metropolitan Police Act in 1829. The, that created a, a, a professional police force which covered all of London apart from the City of London, which kept its own discrete police force. The City of London is governed differently to the rest of London. It, it still is governed differently to the rest of London. It has its own corporation. So by 1888, the, the, for the Ripper murders, when the Ripper murders take place, London's divided into 26 police districts, effectively, um, plus the City of London. Um, so you've got, they're all, they're all given a letter. So A through to, to, to Y. Um, I don't, I don't think there's a Z actually, there might be, so scrap that bit. But anyway, there's, there's, they've all, they're all given a letter. And so H division looks after most of Whitechapel and Spitalfields. But there is, there is the ability to draft in officers from different divisions, but they've all got their own particular divisional commanders and and therefore their own petty jealousies and rivalries. So we shouldn't think that A division and H division are necessarily getting on with each other. And there's a, certainly a divide between uniform and plain clothes, the detectives. And detection has a bad press in in England. It, it, it took a long time. It, so there wasn't a detective agency in, in England in 1829 when the police was first formed. It took until 1842, and it took actually a, a couple of catastrophic failures of the police to catch murderers um, and high-profile criminal, criminals for them to create the detective department in 1842. And that that was a very small number of officers. And it, you could ask ordinary uniform officers to go into plain clothes. Um, but the British kind of didn't like the idea of plain clothes policing at the time. It kind of smacked of Napoleonic spies. Um, they had quite strong memories of, of, of Napoleon's secret police. And we didn't really want to have a detectives in that way and it, it only that only really changes in the 19th century as, as detectives get a place in popular culture so dickens the american wilkie collins and then of course um sherlock holmes that they that the these characterizations of detection if not police detectives in the case of holmes they, they, they begin to establish in the in the popular mind the idea that detection can be a good thing 
because generally speaking, we don't think it's a good thing. Um, alongside the Met and the City of London Police Force, you have the Criminal Investigation Department, which was created in 1878. It's basically the detective division, the detective department, renamed. So in 1878, there's a massive scandal um, called the, the turf fraud scandal when several members of the detective department are um, fingered as, as being part of a, a criminal fraud racket surrounding um, betting. And there's a, there's a, there's a, um, some of these, these detectives kind of flee and are tracked down and eventually there's a big trial at, at the Old Bailey in, in, um, in October, November 1877. And a couple of officers are, um, uh, I think three officers are eventually sent to prison for, for the fraud. And there's a Home Office inquiry after that, which looks at the defects in the detective department, um, not just in London, but, but elsewhere. And there's a reorganisation led by a guy called Howard Vincent, who becomes the first director of the Criminal Investigation Department. And he appoints uh, a guy called Frederick Adolphus Williamson um, as the first superintendent CID. He, he'd been in the detective um, department and he kind of survived the scandal. He'd come out of that um, smelling of roses and he investigated the, the guys that had been, been caught up in it. And um, so they renamed it the, the Criminal Investigation Department so that it didn't have the word detective in it. That's quite <laughs> deliberate. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then once we're into the 1880s, and we're headed for the year of the Whitechapel murders. Before we get there, uh, Charles Warren comes in as commissioner of police. Um, can you describe uh, his personality and maybe some achievements from his career leading up to his appointment as commissioner? And what were his relationships to these various players uh, in the in the Metropolitan Police, the Home Office, the detectives. Mm. Yes, Charles Warren is a, is an interesting character. Um, he, he he's a military man. He, you know, his 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 background is in the military. In in fact, his his background was particularly in the um, Royal Engineers. So he's he's a kind of military man who builds bridges, literally builds bridges. Um, does earthworks and, and and as part of the empire, that's extremely important. So so he's a very successful military man for most of his career. He blots that a bit later on, but we'll come to that. Um, and he, I mean, he's prior to the his appointment in eighteen eighty six as as head of the Metropolitan Police. He, for example, investigated the disappearance of an eminent Orient an eminent Oriental, I can't say that. <laughs> That's Eminent quite a tongue twister. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a guy called Professor Edward Henry Palmer. He disappeared in Syria. Um, and he, he looked into, into what had happened to him on behalf of the government. Um, he earned a knighthood for his service in South Africa, in Bekuana land. So he was, he was kind of considered, he must have been considered as a safe pair of hands. 
and Henderson had to, well, Henderson resigned from the Met. He'd been in, been in charge of the Met for many, many years, and, and he resigned from the Met following the West End riots of 1886 when, when the police mishandled the demonstration in Trafalgar Square, which ended up with rioters smashing windows in Pall Mall. And I think what, what the authorities wanted was someone who could, who could impose some discipline on the police because there were lots of concerns that the police weren't, weren't disciplined enough and weren't able to deal with these sorts of difficult situations. And I think his military background, in many respects, defines his time as commissioner of the Met. He didn't really get detection. He didn't get plain clothes. So he clashed with CID, and he didn't get on with his boss, who was the um, Home Secretary, Matthews. So he, he wasn't well served by his relationships, probably. I, I imagine him as quite a prickly upstanding military guy you, you, you probably see him in those sort of images of him in those things like the charge of the light brigade and those sort of great films from the 60s and 70s of of, of british imperial military figures so I, I kind of see him like that um but actually a, a, a very successful military man until he, he resigned in November 1888, not as people say because of the failure of the police to catch the Ripper, but actually because he he published a sort of defence of himself in a in a in a popular magazine, and he forgot to ask his boss for permission to do so. So he kind of had to fall on his um, on his sword and leave the police. So I, I suspect he was probably quite bad of that. He went back to the army and. Um, And, it, and in this case, he ends up, he ends up in, in 1899, so 11 years after the Ripper case, serving um, in the South African War, uh, what's sometimes known as the Boer War. And he, he's, he has to lead the assault on Spy and Cop, which is an unmitigated military disaster. He, he, he got through that, and actually he recovered his reputation in the relief of the, uh, the town of Ladysmith. I think it's interesting that Paul Begg describes him as a man to whom fate certainly dealt two cruel hands. Leadership of the police during the Ripper case, which is probably impossible for them to solve, and leadership of a of the of soldiers at the Battle of Spine Cop, where they were um, rudely defeated by the Boers. Mm. So yeah, mm. interesting guy. Mm. One other piece of the legal process that becomes very important in the Whitechapel case is uh, coroners. There, there are plenty of, of surgeons and coroners who have a hand in the investigation, uh, the inquests, the examinations. In, in general, how significant were coroners in the legal process of the 1880s when it came to murder or violent crime? Well, we kind of think of the coroner as very important because they, they kind of declare that someone's, that, you know, that their role is to decide that someone's been unlawfully killed. So their duty is to investigate sudden or unexplained deaths, um, so long as that's been notified of a death by a member of the, the public. Um, but we shouldn't assume that they 
investigated every suspicious death or that that every homicide was identified as such. I think in the case of the Ripper murders, it's pretty clear that uh, you you didn't need a tremendous amount of medical knowledge to know that somebody had been murdered in those situations. But in recent years, I think historians have concluded that as the costs of coroner's inquests and the costs of investigating, investigating crime increased in the 19th century, some of the homicides that were deemed more difficult to solve might might more conveniently be labelled as accidental deaths by by coroners. Um, so, and going on, I mean, from the 1850s, the police took on quite a few of the duties of the coroners. So we, you have policemen appointed as coroners' officers, and they're the intermediaries between the police and the coroner. So by 1888, the coroner is important, but the police also have their own attached officers, and of course the police surgeons to help them determine whether a death was suspicious and then if it was what clues what evidence could be gleaned about the cause of death and any potential perpetrators Hmm. Hmm. and so we come to 1888 and let's begin with emma smith and martha tabram what were the circumstances Hmm. of their murders and how were they interpreted when they first occurred and and were examined and discussed they're quite different i think the two murders the murders of emma smith and the murder of martha tabram should probably be separated out i think you'll find there's a there's a consensus growing now that martha tabram was a ripper victim was killed by the same man who killed the five canonical victims. Not not everybody would agree with that, with that, but then not everybody would agree that the five canonical victims were killed by the same person anyway. Mm. But Emma Smith is quite different. She was um, most probably a prostitute um, living in Spitalfield, living in George Street, who in April 1888 was set upon by a gang of men on Osborne Street, which is at the foot of Brick Lane. It 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 looked like a particularly nasty street robbery and Emma was left you know was left for dead she she managed to crawl back to her digs but she died later she was she was taken on on a stretcher to a London hospital where she died of peritonitis on the 4th of April so I think she was killed by a group of men which doesn't really fit in with the um the rest of the Ripper murders. And at the time, I think it was just put down to a group of bullies, um, bullies being like a group of pimps, prostitutes, pimps or bullies. Martha Tabram is a bit different. I mean, she's a 37-year-old um, woman, possibly a prostitute, um, but but like many of the victims, you know, she may not have been a prostitute. She may well, She may have temporarily been a prostitute. She had, a, she had a family background, but she was an alcoholic and she had a reputation for being seen out with men that she wasn't going out with, which might have tainted her reputation. And she was found dead on the landing of George Yard buildings on the 7th of August, 1888. She'd been stabbed 39 times. Most of the wounds had targeted her abdomen. So she hadn't had her throat slashed and she hadn't had organs removed, which would be like 
the later killings or some of the later killings. But I think there's enough in Ma- in Martha's murder, which is suggestive of somebody early on in the process developing the the modus operandi, which would which we would see in later killings. I think at the time it was considered to be a very brutal murder, and there was a suggestion it might have been carried out by soldiers, off-duty soldiers, although there was never any proof of that. Um, it made the link to prostitution because, again, she one of the women that came forward in the aftermath of her murder was a woman called Mary Ann Connolly or Pearly Pole, who was a local prostitute, who said that she and Martha had been out and had picked up men on the Whitechapel Road. Um, so I it made the identification between prostitution and a, and a killer on the streets and those kind of those kind of links. But it wasn't until Polly Nichols was murdered at the end of August that people began to put those two things together mm. in the newspapers. Yeah, and when you talk about the newspapers starting to put things together with the murder of Polly Nichols, can you describe the way that the press covered murders like this and maybe um what relationship did that put journalism in with the police yeah i think probably the reality is that the relationship between the press and the police in the throughout the ripper case was was pretty mixed and um and and that depended on as well on what newspaper you were reading so the police um, Charles Warren, in fact, had, had drawn both praise and criticism for the way that they dealt with things like Bloody Sunday, which is the suppression of rioting in Chicago Square in November 1887, the previous year. Um, so the Times, which is an establishment newspaper, kind of admired the strong arm tactics used against you know, a, a mob of near-do-wells and vagrants. But the more liberal press, so the Star, radical press like the Star or William said to Palm Mal Gazette, tended to condemn police brutality and heavy-handedness. And that follows through into the Ripper murders as they as the Whitechapel murders unfolded, and they become a national and then an international story. The inability of the police to catch the killer, to catch Jack, drew down greater criticism on them and and on to Warren. And then once you start to see the publication of taunting letters from supposedly coming from the murderer himself or offers of advice from the public, the police investigation actually becomes part of the story. And that becomes a negative story at that. It's, it's very easy for the press to snipe at the police. And you have that business as well, which you wouldn't have today, of the police investigation being tainted by the fact that journalists are all over it. So as soon as a murder occurs, there's not that business of a sort of clean police space for them to investigate. It's full of journalists, you know, with pens and paper and ask interviewing witnesses. And, and you have examples of the police interviewing somebody. And then, you know, half an hour later, they're being interviewed by a, by a, a journalist and that their words are being printed in the newspapers. It, that's very difficult for the police to control the investigation in that way. Mm. Mm. Why? So you mentioned those letters. Why did the press publish the what's called the Dear Boss letter? How would you describe the significance of that letter and its publication for the case and for our understanding of these murders? 
Well, I think actually the reality is that the, the letter was, of course, the letter is not written by Jack the Ripper. It's given the name Jack the Ripper, but it's not coming from the killer. It's probably coming from an enterprising journalist or a newspaper editor. And, and I think we probably know now that that is Tom Bulling and Charles Moore of the Central News Agency. Uh, they could see a good story when they saw one and they, and they exploited it by penning that letter and getting it onto the pages of the London press. Um, and I think probably with the compliance, it, it, albeit reluctantly at first, of the police. Uh, the police are desperate for a lead. So they, you know, this might work. This might get people to recognise the handwriting. Who knows? might trigger a memory. That's why they, that's why they do it. But in, in publishing it, they, they kind of created the monster that we, we know as Jack the Ripper before the Dear Boss letter was published. Um, and it was published in the newspapers and on bill, bill posters. At least two women had been brutally murdered by a person or persons unknown after the release of the letter and the subsequent double event, the, the, the killing of two women on one night. A mythical lone assassin had been established in the minds of the Victorian public. And significantly, I think we've, we've never shifted from that view of the killer in the 130 or more years that have passed since the murders ended. And that's the power of the Victorian press. It created the idea of a lone assassin. What, in the history of, of the British press, what kinds of, of precedents were there for discussing a case like this? Um, was the sensational journalism part of a tradition? Or you mentioned uh, that it's called sometimes the new journalism. Was it something really new? Yeah. So what was new about new journalism was its focus, I think, on investigation, on highlighting and interrogating social ills, scandals in some depth. But this is actually prompted, of course, in part by the greater freedoms of publishing. So in previous part of the century, there'd been restrictions on the press and some degree of censorship, which had fallen away largely by the 19th century, and taxation. So newspapers were expensive. And if you couple this with the fact that what we see coming across from, from the USA is the um, technological developments in printing that makes us able to produce newspapers um, more rapidly and cheaper. And then, of course, things like railways allow us to distrib distribute them more quickly. So news could travel further and travel faster. And many more people could read or know somebody who could read so they could read to them, sit around in the pub and read it. More people could afford to buy a newspaper because they're cheaper. And so the newspaper industry is growing. So it's a massive takeoff, particularly from the 1860s and 70s, in, in newspaper readership and newspaper production. Um, so the, the kind of modern newspaper industry, certain newspaper industry we're familiar with by the uh, middle of the 20th century, is kind of established in the late 19th century. And as a result, newspaper editors are looking for more and more sensational copy, especially stories that are going to plug readers in and keep them coming back for the next instalment. If you're a daily newspaper, you know, what are you going to, how are you going to attract your reader to come back, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Um, if you're a weekend newspaper and you've got perhaps more time to think about the story you're putting out, what kind of sensational story do you want to represent to your readers to get them to buy your newspaper on Sunday 
rather than your rivals. And you've got paper boys crying the news in the street, you know, literally shouting the headlines and persuading people to part with their pennies and shillings. So that's really important to have a, an instalment story. And the, and the Ripper case is perfect for that. In terms of sensational crime news, though, there's nothing particularly new about 1888 uh, in news terms. Crime news had filled columns in the papers going right back to the 18th century, right back to the early days of the newspapers, and which, which emerged really after the English Civil Wars of the 17th century. And, and in addition to newspapers, there's a tremendous English print culture, British print culture, which had provided a, a regular diet of murder news and moral panics for readers all the way through that period. So every execution, there would be people selling pamphlets about the person being executed. Mm. So you could kind of read about the person you're seeing slowly strangled to death. Hmm. And the Victorians, as I think writers like Judith Flanders and, and Rosalind Crone have both eloquently described, the Victorians are fascinated by murder. And they followed all the gruesome details of homicides from the discovery of dead bodies through to the capture of the killers to their trial. And then, and then at least until 1868, their public execution. And actually, I think Flanders has argued that once you remove hanging from the public gaze, once it's no longer taking place on the, on, on, in, in front of a prison or on the roofs of a prison, and you put it behind brick walls, actually that makes people's fascination with murder grow even more. And of course, by the 1860s, we were only hanging people for murder. We weren't hanging people as we did in the 18th century for all forms of crime. Hmm. One case uh, from the 18th century that looks like an interesting uh, point of comparison or a precedent is the London Monster case. Can you describe that in brief terms and maybe how, how it was published about in the press? Yes. Uh, I mean, briefly, in 1789, there were a series of attacks in London on women, which kind of provoked a sort of moral panic. They kind of happened like this. So a strange man would approach respectable women, offer to let them smell his, his you know, bunch of artificial flowers, his nosegay, and then stab them, usually whilst making suggestive comments. And he generally stabbed them in, in, in the behind, in the buttocks. And sometimes they wouldn't even realise they'd been stabbed until they got home because they wore so many layers of clothing. And the story occupied the columns of newspapers, which created a sensation. And the man named John Julius Augustine, he was a wealthy insurance broker, offered a £50 reward, which £50 in 1789 is, is a considerable sum of money. And eventually someone was caught and put on trial in July 1790, a man named Rinnick Williams. He was an artificial flower se seller. Um, he, ha he had two trials because the first trial was a bit of a farce, but he was, he was convicted and sent to prison. And I think we can see some links between the man, because he was dubbed the London monster or the monster, to uh, events in 1888 and, and, of course, to the context of the time. I think it, it's important always to, to see history in context. And in 1789, what we know about 1789 is there was a revolution going on across the Channel in France. But the revolution in France, following on from the, the revolution in America in the 1770s, 
had raised all these ideas about rights and freedoms. And one of the rights and freedoms that people were talking about was women's rights and freedoms. Mm. And I think when we look at the London Monster, while it didn't directly influence press reporting of the 1888 Whitechapel murders, there's a connection in between the way in which the demonising of the Ripper's victims as loose women operating outside of male protection and the late 18th century advice for women to stay off the streets for fear of the London monster. There's a connection there in this idea that women should stay off the streets. Mm-hmm. So the Whitechapel murder and the London monster are both examples, along with um, Spring Hill Jack in the 19th century, of characters who target women, and uh, male characters that target women, and are kind of saying, get back inside the house, stop straying into what is male masculine territory. Mm. So regarding uh, the letters that came, that followed after um, the Dear Boss letter that, as you say, gives the, the kind of mythological character of Jack the Ripper his, his name and, you know, a kind of uh, saucy identity. Um, <laughs> you've written that it's highly likely that all of the letters are fakes or hoaxes and do not come from the killer at all. You mentioned the only one that, that maybe is different from that is the what's called the From Hell letter. Um, you explore those ideas at length in the uh, Torso Murders book. Can you say a bit more about that point, about the letters likely all being hoaxes? How difficult was it for police to trust any kind of tips or notes or witness statements that they got? Yeah. I mean, I think most researchers today would agree that the vast majority of the letters, um, certainly the letters that are purport to be from the killer, are either fakes or hoaxes. I mean, lots of people writing letters were writing letters which were offering advice, and we probably have to deal with them slightly differently. Um, but it's not it's not beyond the bounds of credibility that the killer would try and communicate with the police or the public. I mean, in the States and You have the Zodiac Killer, who who certainly did. Um, It's just that these particular letters generally seem incredulous. And and I think the exception being made for the From Hell letter is because it wasn't signed Jack the Ripper. Um, Also, that some handwriting experts, and, and, and I would qualify that because they don't all agree, do hold out the possibility that this was the work of some poorly educated individual who was unused to writing perhaps someone learning their letters as an adult. And it's one of the points that we make in the Thames Torso case, a book about the Thames Torso case, is that we imagine that our guy was potentially kind of trying to edu- trying to improve himself. So, but regardless of whether the, the letters are real or fake, hoaxes or whatever, um, it follows that in such a, difficult, fevered situation as the police found themselves in 1888, they'd have to check every single lead they got, regardless of whether it was credible or not. Um, So hours and hours and hours of police time would have been wasted following up those kind of false leads sent in by attention seekers, if that's how we want to see them. Um, Just because the the stuff looks obviously fake, I mean, what if it had been true? And I think that probably explains also why they published the Dear Boss letter, because it's what if? When it when it came to investigating crimes, um, to what extent did police 
depend on good informants and good tips in order to solve a, a, a tricky case. W- were there any significant or high-profile crimes that were solved with the assistance of like an anonymous letter leading up to this point? I, I yeah, it's one of your curveballs. I don't really know of any. I mean, what I can say is that the police use informants. And, um, you know, the, the use of informants by detectives, by police is, is often reported. So there are very many cases that become for the, the police magistrates or before the, the old baby in the 19th century, where you will hear a policeman saying, acting on information, acting on information. Now, some of that information will be information by what we would call a stakeout, you know, watching a, watching a building, watching, watching particular suspected criminals. But often it's information from the criminal um, fraternity, um, from neighbours overhearing conversations, you know, in much the same way that the police have probably always and will always gain information. The public will tell them some, they'll get some from criminals who want to um, get a lighter sentence or they'll, they'll pay money to and people on the margins of criminality in order to get information, all of that kind of stuff is really important. I don't think the police could operate without, I don't think the police in the 19th century could operate without informants, without information. Um, we have to bear in mind, of course, that the 19th century police don't have many of the tools that the modern police have, you know, like DNA testing, fingerprint testing, closed circuit television, and they have none of that stuff. Hmm. Hmm. Thinking. Um, back to the people who were, the women who were targeted, you challenged the idea that all of the women killed in the Whitechapel murders were prostitutes. And and you mentioned this earlier in this conversation too. Um, you wrote, one of the first things that anyone reads about the Ripper murders is that all of the victims were prostitutes. However, it is probably more accurate to say that all of the women killed by the Whitechapel murderer had been selling themselves for sex in the streets shortly before they met their death. So can you describe the significance of the distinction that you're making there? Because I do think it's important, uh, but I'd, I'd like to hear, hear you talk a little bit more about how, from your understanding of what was going on in the East End of London at the time, what life was like there, how important this distinction is. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, become, it's now become hotly contested whether the victims um, of Jack the Ripper specifically the canonical five victims were prostitutes. I think I'd make a distinction on the grounds that occasionally selling sex in order to get enough money to eat, drink, or pay for a roof over your head is not the same thing as being a full-time sex worker. It may well be that all of Jack's victims were impoverished prostitutes, as they've been described for over a century. But I think we should hold out the possibility that at the time that they met their deaths in 1888, they were so down and out that prostitution was their only option. It's, of course, very easy for the police. It was, very, of course, very easy for the police and the press to dismiss these women as unfortunates who brought their own deaths upon themselves. They were all thought to be prostitutes. But whether that's because they were single women or they were women who were out drinking and they were women out on their own, I mean, those all fit with ideas of what prostitutes were. So kind of that boundary between being what we might describe as a woman of loose morals 
and a prostitute. You know, a prostitute is somebody who sells sex for money. A woman of loose morals doesn't necessarily sell sex at all. Um, she might have sex with people um, who she's not married to um, and have multiple partners. And that, that might, even in our own society, be frowned upon, rightly or wrongly. But in the 19th century, it most certainly would have been. So I think, for me, all these women were, were killed because the, the killer thought they were prostitutes. There is also a distinction there. I think the killer believed that they were prostitutes, and that was his motivation for killing them. But at the same token, prostitutes would present themselves in parts of London where it was they made themselves vulnerable to a killer who targeted strangers in the way that we think. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and in some of your writing, um, you follow Judith Walkowitz in describing East End sex workers as members of the working class. Can you describe how, how that point helps us to understand their lives, um, how they would have thought about themselves, their control over their own trade? Um, how is it helpful to think of sex workers as members of the working class? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important. I mean, um, th th these are poor women. None of them came from wealth. And we, we know a bit more about, uh, thanks to the work of you know various members of the Whitechapel Society and authors like Neil Sheldon, we know that many of these rip the Ripper's victims had kind of normal, respectable lives before they arrived in the East End. But, but almost invariably, their lives are characterised by a kind of decline into poverty, exacerbated by, by alcoholism. Um, personal tragedies, broken marriages, you know, bereavements, financial insecurity. This is what led them to the East End. But they're all working class women. None of them came from a higher rank in society. And I think Walkovich is interesting in, in saying that when we look at Victorian prostitutes who, who are invariably described as fallen and unfortunate by people at the time, you know, these these are women who've fallen from grace, who who are unfortunately in the situation they find themselves. But Walkovich wants to turn that round, and I think this is interesting to see these women as being empowered and independent. Being, you know, these are women who've refused to follow the kind of path in life that's been mapped out for them by men generally, and, and instead have gone for the relative quick prosperity and freedom that that the prostitution might bring them at least in the short term so i mean we again context is everything we have to remember that late 19th century british society was heavily patriarchal women's rights and you know, feminism these are things that are emerging but but it's very very slow for the vast majority of working class women life offered not very much you, know, you, you had a life of judge drudgery you had a life which is you know, it's a life characterized by almost constant pregnancy or childcare and a marriage to a man who frankly was probably considered decent if he didn't beat you up. So perhaps it's not unreasonable for some young women to choose to prostitute themselves for a relatively brief period of time if it brought them much more money than they would earn by sewing or charring or something else. Um, like like young women of all ages, they want to be able to spend money on nice things, you know, on, on hats and clothes and jewellery. And I think we should recognise that that 
that this sort of female independence was frequently being repressed by, by male and female actors in society at all classes. Victorian society is obsessed with notions of respectability and the proper social order of things. So prostitutes are independent women who clearly didn't know their proper place and who flaunted their sexuality. And for some, that set them apart as social priors and, and in many ways, of course, justified the actions of a serial killer in, in murdering them. Um, it's something that um, Donald Romlow always cites, you know, that for some Victorians, the, the Ripper was just engaged in street cleaning. Um, you mentioned Neil Sheldon, and uh, you know, in reading, uh, I mentioned already uh, Paul Begg's Forgotten Victims book, but in those studies that have looked at the lives of these women, you know, we find, as, as you mentioned, that Annie Chapman was married to a coachman for a time and lived with him in, in Berkshire, where, she, where, where he attended to Sir Tess Berry um, before she ended up in Whitechapel. And that uh, Liz Stride, she opened a coffee hall with one of her husbands. Um, what sort of, of class positions were these? Were these still working class people? Um, kind of what from what heights did Annie Chapman and Liz Stride in particular fall if we're talking in in that kind of parlance of the time well as I understand it Liz Stride you know she'd come over from Sweden so she's an immigrant and um she has a very interesting life and it's very difficult to know about her life because I think much of it was invented by her in in her tellings of it and that's one of the problems that we have. We, we, we know very little about the Ripper victims, really. We know very, very little about Mary Kelly, for example. And so it allows people to infill with invention stories about her life. Um, but I think in terms of the fall, yeah, I, I think there's a danger here to say that these women have, these women are unusual in, um, in, in falling through the social, um, thrawning down the social staircase but i suspect that's true of very many women in in victorian society i i think you you would probably characterize this drive as coming from the working class with a bit of entrepreneurial spirit in setting up a coffee shop and we're not talking about somebody who's going to have a string of starbucks up and down the the country is not is not a, this is not a rich entrepreneur this is somebody getting by running a coffee shop and um, so the co uh, a coachman is still a servant. So Annie Chapman is married to a coachman, but a coachman is, is a respectable servant, but it's still a domestic servant. So you're still tied to a family house and dependent upon um, your master. So it's a, it's a subservient position in society as a member of the working class. But there are degrees of working class life. And I think what's happening to these women, and we see it, and it's very, it's very well illustrated in, in Reuben Holt's book, is, is the way that a series of events, tragic events, undermines them. And when you add things like drinking to that or something, it's the drink which is the catalyst to this. That's when they start to slip. And a woman without a husband is, is really in a very, very dangerous situation which is why so many women in working class women in Victorian London would have quickly found another partner, adopted his name. So we, you know, we, with several of the Ripper victims, you know, their names are kind of movable. It's whoever they are with, it becomes their 
common law husband. You know, marriage is not necessarily something you need to have. Um, in that respect, they're quite modern, I suppose. But there is a fall from grace. But we know about these five or six women because they were murdered by someone who's come down to history as Jack the Ripper. And it's interesting because one of the criticisms of, of Ripperology has been that it focuses on the Ripper and not on the victims. But of course, we would only know the we only know the victims because they were killed by the Ripper. You know, millions of working class women died. Plenty of them were murdered or or beaten and then died of injuries or died of relative starvation or illness in the 19th century or died in childbirth. We don't know any of their names because they weren't killed by a serial killer. I'm not, I'm not making a case for a statue to the Ripper. It's just, you know, <laughs> no, it is no, another no. way to look at it. Well, and I, yeah, yeah, when you were talking about Liz Stride's coffee shop, I, when I read that detail of her life, that was actually what, I just felt such a close connection <laughs> to someone like that. Oh, who, have you got a coffee shop? No, I haven't. I haven't. But I do have friends. <laughs> I do have friends who, you know, opened a small shop. Mm. So when I was thinking about, yeah. But of course, but that, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like walking the streets of Whitechapel. And it's like being in a place where someone was. Those are the things that connect us to it. We, we, you know, the past is, is you know, famously another country, but actually it's, it's got lots of things that we recognize in it. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier um, that in November of 1888, the murder investigation is, is underway. Um, and the police are not catching the killer. There's been a, a huge mobilization of the forces in October that has been unsuccessful in charging anyone with these crimes. And as you mentioned, that's often pointed to as the reason for Charles Warren's resignation. Um, but he publishes his article, the police of the metropolis in Murray's magazine. Um, and you talked a little bit about the consequences of that already <laughs> with, with Matthews in the home office, but what was the substance of the article? Um, you know, what's this, this military man who's now in charge of the police? What's he arguing about the way that policing should be done? What's he saying? Well, I think what he's, what he's mostly saying in that article is that he hasn't been able to run the police in the way that he wants to run it. He's being, he's having interference. Is frustrated by interference from from CID, you know, from the detectives. Um, he's he's suffering a tremendous amount of criticism, and it's suggested he's tried to resign several times and not been allowed to resign. Um, so I, I, I guess what he's really saying in that is, you know, the police are a fine body of men. Um, my police are you know are working extremely hard, and um, well, I'm working with one hand tied behind my back. I'm not able to properly run this case as I want. I want to, and I think that's that's a kind of inevitability you get in that in that that conflict which uh, which exists in British policing. I think even to some extent, people would probably argue it, it still exists. It certainly existed in British society right through until um, the, the relatively recent decades of that tension between uniform and plain clothes, uniform and detection. The detectives are kind of seen as a, they see themselves as an elite part of uh, the police, and they're kind of seen as people who don't have to follow the rules by 
by others and therefore are resented to get better pay, better conditions and all that kinds of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it may be the same in, in the US, but it, it, it certainly um, frustrates Sir Charles Warren. And I, I, I rather suspect he couldn't get out of the police quick enough. So the, the article from Irish magazine was, was his chance to have a go at those who criticise him and, 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 and call for his resignation. I mean, and, and you just look at the reaction of the press to it. I mean, you know, the star has a real go at him from it. You know, it, it's, it, it says, I wrote this down, a more extraordinary document never found its way into print. It would be charitable to suppose that when he penned this remarkable addition to the literature of Colney Hatch, Sir Charles Warren was labouring under some unusual excitement. And for contents, Colney Hatch is London's largest lunatic asylum. Mm. So it's it kind of like saying that he'd gone mad, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't mention this in any of the outlines, but I've been thinking a lot about Charles Warren bringing that kind of uh, imperial military discipline to the London police. And, you know, a lot of the discussions that I'm a part of here in the, in the United States today are about the militarization of the police, you know, is kind of the phrase that we use to get at that issue here and now. And, and I've read a little bit about some of the radical press criticizing Charles Warren along similar grounds, saying that he was turning the London police, the, the Met, uh, into a military, an occupying military force. Um, and this wasn't in the question, so maybe you don't have something prepared, but would you be able to say a few more words about, you know, was it fair to criticize Charles Warren for militarizing the police in London? I think it's, um, it's it's certainly something that's thrown at him, and it's thrown at him in the wake of Bloody Sunday in November 1887, when when he kind of he doesn't want to suffer what happened to his predecessor Henderson in in the Pall Mall or the West End riots of 1886. So he kind tries to close down demonstrations in Trafalgar Square, which is kind of London's traditional place for demonstrations and for political gatherings. And um, that kind of is met with cries of, you know, out outrage cries about free speech, as you, as you might imagine. And protests go ahead, and he he sends in the the, the soldier, he sends in his his um, disciplined policeman with, in a in a baton charge to crack heads and clear the square, and that creates a riot. And there I mean, some fantastic cartoons from the time depicting Warren as you know on top of Nelson's column and policemen beating up protesters, you know, on all the plinths around the square, um, the lions getting involved in everything else. And there's, a, there's that kind of sense of the, he's, he's an own goal, really, for Warren, because the press can can rage against his militarisation in Trafalgar Square, although some of them are very pleased with what he does. The Times are very pleased with what he does. And, and when it comes to the Ripper case, of course, he doesn't catch the killer. So there's a, you know, the criticism is, is aimed full square at the Metropolitan Police because here is a murderer who's killing poor women in East London. And here is a, uh, a commissioner of the Met who sent his men in to beat up poor men in the West End of London. So there's kind of a, it's a, it's a very obvious target for radical press for the liberal press to have a go at, to have a go at Warren about it. I mean, whether it's fair, 
He did concentrate on military discipline, but he probably thought that was very important. And and let's face it, he only becomes commissioner in late 1886. By 1888, he's not had that much time to do very much with Metropolitan And already they've got one of the most high-profile murder cases, or the most high-profile murder case for decades. Mm. So it's a bit tricky for him, really. I, I always started off disliking Sir Charles Warren, and I kind of have quite a lot of sympathy for him now. When it comes to the press covering the murders and the investigation, um, stories start to dwindle after the inquest of Mary Kelly. Uh, why is that? Why, why does the press kind of decide that the story is over at that point? Well, I guess someone like Stanley Cohen, the sociologist, will argue that a moral panic withers out and the press eventually get bored of it and they move on to something else. But I think the answer is quite simple, really. In 1888, the police refuse, refuse to cooperate with the press in the wake of Mary Kelly's murder. They, they stop providing any information or access. You, you kind of imagine them closing down. You, you imagine, I imagine, reporters standing outside Lehman Street and being told to go away by by uniformed officers and when they've got the, the inquest is closed down and that's another terrific place for the press to get information so there's no inquest there's no information coming out of the police headquarters um coppers on the beat aren't talking to the press there's nothing to print so if there's nothing to print then you go on and start talking about something else mm. Mm. Of course, those of us who are looking back at the year, at the case, uh, at the killings with um, historical interest, there are things that follow, um, events, documents that do continue to draw interest. And one of those is McNaughton's memorandum. Uh, can you talk about Melva McNaughton and... Uh, who he was, what is this, this memorandum that he wrote, and to what extent it is or is not significant, especially in light of one of the comments you've written that, that he in particular may have been invested with too much significance by others who've looked at the investigation. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing you'd probably have to say is if you, you, could, ask a, you could ask a dozen different so-called experts about the Ripper case, about McNaughton, and you'd probably get a dozen slightly different answers. But this this would be mine, I think. So we, we know that Melville McNaughton was Chief Constable CID in June 1889. So he has an indirect connection to the Whitechapel murder case. He would have known people who were involved in the case, even though he wasn't directing the case himself. In February 1894, he he wrote a report on the case and that was prompted by speculation in the Sun newspaper of the day that the murderer was a man named Thomas Cutbush. And he was kind of refuting that, I think. And the report really comes to light, though, in, in 1959, when McNaughton's daughter allowed a TV documentary maker access to her father's papers. Um, so that, that's kind of how we, we get this this thing. The report itself is quite short um, and it, it 
in it, McNaughton names three possible Ripper suspects, so three people that were supposedly known to the police and part of the investigation at the time. And these were um, Montague John Druitt, Michael Ostrogs, uh, Michael, Michael Ostrog, and a guy just known as Kosminski, not given a first name, but generally has been given the name Aaron Kosminski. Um, but Kosminski, a Polish Jew, is how McNaughton writes it. Uh, the McNaughton Memorandum, as it's known, has been given significance, considerable significance over the years since 1959 because, because it names three men and because it suggests the police had them in mind. Um, and this supported the claims of Sir Robert Anderson, who was head of CAD at the time of the murders. And so we can consider it to be a, a fairly reliable source. Um, and, and he said this in his, he, he, he said the police knew who the Ripper was in his memoirs, which were published in 1910. Now, police memoirs are notoriously difficult because they're often self-justifications and they're written after the event. So we, we can give them quite a lot of credibility, but we need to also be sceptical at the same time. And when we look at McNaughton's trio of suspects, my problem is, that they broadly fit the typology of who the Victorians thought ought to have ought to have been the killer, i.e., someone who was considered to be a social other. So we have a an upper class gentleman, we have a psychotic doctor, and we have a deranged immigrant Jew, Jew um, uh, a deranged Jewish immigrant. They're, they're all the people who are Druitt, Ostrog, and Kuzminski, and I think. <laughs> It's rather convenient that McNaughton identifies those three as the people that the police were looking for, because those are the sort of people the press were telling the police they ought to be looking for. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. The annoying thing about McNaughton is spelling his name right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I see his name spelt differently all the times, and I, I, I spelt it wrong, having corrected it in my book, my last book, and that was one of the reasons the Ripperologist had such a go at me. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, nothing like a nothing like a typo to get them upset. Yeah, I spelled a few of my own. <laughs> I spelled it a, <laughs> a few of my own ways too. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation uh, when you were talking about Jack the Ripper as a modern myth, um, that kind of without the mystery, the Whitechapel murders are just another tale of sadistic killing and that part of what makes it compelling is the ability to project our own ideas into the gap where we don't have a person there. Can you speak a little bit more to the idea that it's the uncertainty about the identity of the killer that keeps this story alive? Do you have more to say about that than you already already said? Uh, well, I can certainly try. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think identifying Jack the Ripper or arguing about the identity of the Whitechapel murder has, has, has kind of fueled the Ripper industry. It's an industry which has existed for over 100 years. I mean, there are Ripper tours taking place whilst the murders are, um, are happening. You know, Ripper tours aren't a modern invention. People, there was a waxworks show on Whitechapel High Street at the time of the Ripper murders. This is an industry which started in 1888 and has continued apace ever since. And now we have films, you know, movies, and um, we have you know, franchises like um, Assassin's Creed, the, 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 the video game, which references the Ripper. You can play as Jack the Ripper if you want to. Uh, there are numerous Ripper solution 
histories and there are ripper novels and um you know i have a ripper jack the ripper game um you can get jack the ripper themed t-shirts you know all sorts of things um jack the ripper if you want to um but the fact that so many facts in the case of disputed like like for example just the number of victims how many were there were there five were there six were there eight were there nine were, were there more the writing on the wall in Goulston Street, the graffiti, the Ripper letters themselves, you know, whether Dear Boss or From Hell or any of the others are real or not. All of those things mean we can keep on revisiting the case in the hope of finding new evidence. Or, or more accurately, we can look for new interpretations of old evidence. But I uh, kind of think it's worth saying this again, but more than this, successive popular representations of Jack the Ripper have kind of recast the killer for their own age. So currently, Jack has become a sort of Mr. Ordinary, a mundane, everyday, a killer hiding in plain sight. And I think that's interesting because he's like the modern terrorist who we don't notice until you know he, he draws his knife or he reveals he's wearing a suicide belt. So I think it's the ability of Jack to fit in where we want him to. And of course, we all love the past and we love the Victorians because they, they kind of seem very close to us. I mean, they're only 100 or so years ago. You know, there are people alive who were alive in, you know, almost alive in the Victorian period. Um, you know, my grandmother was born um, at the turn of the century. I mean, she's, she's passed away now, but she's, you know, she could tell me things from her mother, which were about, you know, Queen Victoria's Jubilee and things. It seems close, but it's so different. And in Jack's London, there are things we'd recognise, but they're all kind of, I want to say, swathed in a sort of gas-like, a sort of mythic, mythic mist um, in a smog that kind of swirls around and giving that kind of touch of gothic horror that's so much part of our way of viewing that period. Um, so I don't think we'll ever be able to conclusively prove who Jack the Ripper was, um, at least not be able to prove to a standard that you could prosecute somebody in a court in England today. But that kind of sense of mystery of wanting to work out who it was, and then spin-offs from that that keep the story going. So, you know, organisations like the White Chapel Society uh, are people who have moved on from just identifying the Ripper, trying to. They're now interested in the victims. They're interested in the streets, the buildings, the social history, the popular culture of the time. That, that it, the, the Ripper case is so much more than it was even sort of 20 years ago, I think. Mm. I mean, I'm planning a conference in 2022, if we ever get through lockdown. Um, you know, I want to have an international conference at Northampton that brings people who are amateurs, you know, ripperologists, as we might call them, Whitechapel Society and their, their, their groups, together with serious academics like, you know, someone like Judith Walkovich or, you know, um, some of the people that have researched, have, have, have researched things like prostitution and crime and bring those people together to have a conversation because I think it would be fascinating. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and you just to kind of sew things up for us um i read your jack and the thames torso murders book as one of those studies that does look at jack as or the killer <laughs> because there is no jack as 
one of those kind of everyman figures, someone who wasn't one of those three stereotypes, but who instead was at home and fit in and would have been recognizable as belonging in the East End. Um, could you talk about your own thinking about why it was important to put that book together and explore the reasons for, for making an identification of the killer the way that you did? Yes, I mean, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm very aware that in, in London Shadows, I kind of said, uh, you can't do this, so uh, it's no point. Is There are much more interesting things to talk about. And then I wrote a book saying, <laughs> saying who I thought Jack the Ripper was. Um, I mean, I have very particular reasons for doing that. Um, I wrote it with someone else, with Andy Wise, who felt he had a story to tell. And I wanted to enable him as a former student of mine to, to tell his story because I think he would have struggled to get that out into print in the way that perhaps with a little bit of background behind me, I was able to enable him to do. So it was partly a personal story of allowing Andy to, to, to tell the story he wanted to tell. And then he'd spent many, many years researching. Um, I always felt it was problematic to identify a killer, and I, I kind of still do. But um, I think Hardiman is as good a suspect as, as any and better than many, I think. Mm. So, I mean, one of the things we concluded was if we if we tried to apply historical research methods and the rationale of a police detective who's looking for means, motive and opportunity, we could point the finger at a local man who we believed was responsible, a man involved in the meat trade. It, it seems to fit. So we, we figured that the killer had to know Whitechapel. He had to be able to move around Whitechapel in Spitalfields without causing suspicion. Um, they had to know all these dark alleys and cut-throughs. Um, he had to be able to avoid police patrols, particularly as, as more and more police were put on the streets, um, particularly following the double event. Mm. So this is someone who needs to know his local environment, and that doesn't really fit with a doctor from outside or a slumming toff or any of these other people. Um, it has to be a local man, I think. You had to have somebody who had a clear motive for wanting to kill him. Many of the books I've read about Jack the Ripper, I can't really understand why he would do the things he would do. That's kind of the bit that the writers don't tell you. Mm. Why would he do that? Now, I understand, of course, that without knowing who the killer is and without a confession, we can never know why somebody chooses to murder. Um, we think of serial killers today, and, and, and there's a lot of time spent poring over what they have to say if they can say or they choose to say what they want to say. And we can't necessarily trust it anyway. But I feel you had to find a, try and identify a motive. And in this case, we found somebody who had means, motive, and opportunity. Mm. So James Hardiman had been flagged up in a previous short article, in a couple of short articles for Ripperologist, and Andy thought he was worth investigating. So he set off to investigate him. And James Hardiman was probably a pet food salesman and someone who probably worked as a horse slaughterer. And we accept that you can't find records for many of these things, so it's very difficult to prove, but it seems quite likely. Um, and if he was a horse slaughterer and uh, if he was involved in the meat trade, he was probably familiar with or operate or, or he was probably familiar with or working for a company called Harrison Barber in the 1880s because they entirely dominated horse slaughtering. And horse slaughtering, you know, it might seem like a niche occupation, but London is entirely powered by horses. 
in mm. the 19th century. There are thousands of horses, you know, carrying carts, people riding horses, pulling carriages, hansom cabs, everything is horse drawn. We talk about horsepower in cars, but this is literally horsepower. And horses get sick and they get old. And when they get old and sick, you know, they don't go and live in some nice little, you know, paddock somewhere on the outskirts of London. They're slaughtered and their flesh and their bones and all their bits and pieces are turned into other products like glue and pet food and all sorts of other things. And sometimes Dickens suggested human food. So it's kind of ubiquitous. Um, the man pushing a, a, a cart around the street selling cat food, everyone would know who he was, but no one would really see him because he was just that guy, you know, that strange guy, probably a bit weird. So that's kind of why he's hiding in plain sight. And as for, for motive, we believe that Hardiman had contracted syphilis, probably from a prostitute. He would have passed that to his wife, who passed it to their child. Uh, their only child who died and then his wife died in hospital she was in the london for a long time so he had plenty of opportunity he lived in whitechapel he lived in Henning street his family lived in hanbury street where annie chapman was killed in fact he lived right next door to where annie chapman was killed by that court so he was right at the heart of the killing zone and we kind of extrapolated that to think that perhaps Hardiman was not just responsible for the Whitechapel murders, but we also believe he could be connected to the four torso murders that occurred in London between May 1887 and September 1889. And in total, we, we argue that, that Hardiman is probably responsible for 13 murders and three more fatal attacks over a period of nearly four years. He died in December 1891. He was only 32, and Alice Mackenzie is the last victim in the series, dying in in February 1891. Um, and, and her death is looks like a tired killing. You know that that she she almost survives. The policeman comes upon her body. She's had her throat cut, but nothing else has been done to her. I think I concluded that James Hardiman is as good a suspect as many, and I think. You know, you can criticise quite a lot of our case, um, criticise quite a lot of my writing, but um, <laughs> he certainly bears close examination. But we're not going to know who the Ripper was. No one is going to be satisfied who the Ripper was. For the quite simple thing is, as soon as you decide who the Ripper was and we agree it, that kills the industry or, or it kills one branch of the industry. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. It's a very hard life um, that the people were living at that time, uh, particularly in the East End. But an event like a murder captures the, the witnesses and the investigators in that moment of time going about their day-to-day -day lives. And there are things, main, as I said, mainstream histories don't often tell you. For example, there were lots of horses, lots of them. What did you do if your horse was injured in an accident or if it dropped dead in the street? And how dirty were those streets, awash with horse urine and worse? And what was it really like to travel in a handsome cab, rocking along like a ship tossed in a storm? So we, 
you know, all of that is sort of stuff that you don't normally find out about. Even the Sherlock Holmes story, have you have Holmes bowling along in a hansom cab, but we don't actually get told what it was really like. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.